0: 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the next landing spot for this Gospel for Life series as we've been working through uh, this wonderful book in Corinthians, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Prophecy and Tongues, and uh, I'll begin reading verse 1 and make our way all the way through verse 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 25, hear the word of the Lord. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, In producing a sound if they do not produce a distinction in the tones how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound who will prepare himself for battle so also you unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear how will it be known what is spoken for you will be speaking into the air there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind Is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also, I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and let's ask his help. Father, we do thank you uh, that you've given us this opportunity to gather here today. And as is so often prayed, Lord, we ask again, we plead with you to open our eyes to see Open our heart to believe Wonderful things that you say about yourself From your word We ask this in Christ's name And for your glory Amen So prophecy and tongues 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Um, As we work through this passage to get today uh, I just want to encourage you once again To bear in mind these two phrases And they are um, Love and edify. Love and edify. And so uh, as we work through chapters 12, 13, and 14, even as we consider the letter as a whole, um, I'm, I've, I've been guilty of the same thing. I think prior to this sermon series, if you ask me what's 1 Corinthians, or what's going on, what's the, what's the health of the church in Corinth, then, uh, then, then I would have immediately pointed to uh, their divisions, the, the things where they lacked community. And uh, it hasn't been until uh, being forced to kind of put our nose in this text and uh, and seek the Lord's help and trying to understand what's going on that the emphasis of love and edification for the church have become so crystal clear. And so as we think through these two gifts that he highlights today, prophecy and tongues, do so in mind, Uh, of what he's previously been saying, our love for each other and that gifts have been given by the Spirit individually for the common good of the church. So our outline today is this. Number one is going to be gifts in Corinth as they are defined, pursued, desired, and as they function. Secondly, the edification of the church. Third, engaging the mind in the work of the Spirit. And lastly, tongues and prophecy, unbelievers and Believers, And then at the conclusion of this sermon, I've got uh, four questions that, uh, that I want to attempt to address um, as they are connected with spiritual gifts. So first of all, gifts in Corinth, as they are defined, pursued, desired, and uh, function, how they're, how they're lived out in the life of this church. This section here begins with two words, pursue and desire. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Thankfully, the Corinthians were not left to wonder what they were to pursue or what they were to desire. They were to pursue love. They were to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. More specifically, they were to earnestly desire prophecy. Now, before moving too quickly into what Paul is addressing, I want to briefly consider this phrase, pursue love. You may recall, we were just in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 last week. These are the immediate words of Paul for the Corinthians, following him, telling them and showing them the more excellent way. You remember he he concluded in chapter 12... 31 but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way that led into chapter 13 he said you can speak in tongues of men of angels but if you don't have love what are you you're a clanging symbol you can have the gift of prophecy you can know all mysteries you can have all knowledge the kind of faith that removes mountains but if you don't have love what are you you are nothing you can give all your possessions to feed the poor you can surrender your body even to be burned but if you have if you don't have love it profits you nothing these are his words and he concludes chapter 13 faith hope and love abide but the greatest of these is what the greatest of these is love so you can have all of this stuff but without love you're a clanging symbol. you are nothing and you have nothing So, faith, hope, remain, but the greatest of these is love. Because the greatest of these is love, he commands them here. This word pursue. He's commanding them here. The verb underneath this tense is a command, or or the tense underneath this verb is a command. He's telling them to pursue it. He's commanding them to pursue love. What he is clearly telling them is that they are to never stop pursuing love. So this pursuit of love is not temporal. It's not situational. It's a a matter of life. And even one rendering of this word would be to hunt for love. So I'm not here to re-preach chapter 13 again, but simply to point out to us from chapter 14 that Paul is reminding them and he's reminding us of the primacy of love. So tongues in the context of Corinth, the text clearly says that they were used to speak to God. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He is uttering mysteries that no one can understand. Here's where the debate, here's, here, here's how we can distill and boil down the debate. What, what's what's going on? Why, why is there uncertainty and disagreement that's there and that's this question is the term used here glossalia is this uh, a reference to human language or is this a reference to ecstatic utterances uh, which are the uttering of an unintelligible phrases that are unique to any other dialect ecstatic utterances are not their own language so we have English we have Spanish we have Morric, we have Hausa. Um, so that's a distinct language with an alphabet. It's discernible. Aesthetic utterances that come from emotional experiences follow no letter or language pattern. So New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner, he's somebody that we've referenced quite a bit throughout this entire series. He leans toward, he suggests that um, what tongues mean here are languages. However, there are a few other noted scholars out there that suggests that it's utterances, ecstatic utterances, that that's what's being practiced here in the church at Corinth. So regardless of the interpretation, so whether you land on the side of this is a known human language or that it's a, uh, a, a, an undiscernible, unintelligible utterance, regardless of where you land on that, this is what's essential. We must have understanding must know what's being said. The aim is to understand, for this, the understanding of it is what is edifying to the church. Again, this is what's thread throughout the whole letter. And so we see not only is it edifying for the church, but we're going to see a little bit later on why it's also helpful for the unbelievers who may assemble with the believers. So for the sake of this sermon uh, I, I lean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with Schreiner in his camp, lean more toward tongues as a human language and not an ecstatic utterance. So two reasons for this. One, the term that I mentioned earlier, um, glossolalia, it means human language. The second would be this from Acts chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Now there were Jews living, this is the, the day of Pentecost. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Parja, Pamphila, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So these are two reasons why i'm leaning in that camp that what's happening here in corinth is the same thing that was happening there in acts chapter two they were hearing it in their own language the reason the church could not understand the tongue or language was not because it was unintelligible babbling but because there was no interpretation of the language it was a mystery because they did not understand the language so for example right now somebody could be on this platform where I'm standing and they may speak in one of the native tongues of Nigeria Hausa and not a single person in our midst would understand anything that they are saying we wouldn't understand the language another example would be uh, some of us may remember several years ago the trip to India you might remember the lady that we affectionately called Grandma and uh, just seemed to be a faithful saint. And I recall our our group going around in the village and we were uh, meeting with people and praying and at one moment, she, I mean, it it seemed like she was just calling fire down from heaven, just praying. The problem was none of us understood anything that she was saying. She was speaking in in Telugu. And I I just remember sitting there in that experience saying, Lord, I don't know what she's saying. But whatever is consistent with what your word says, whatever would be uh, good for us, I, I pray that you would answer that prayer. Or several years ago when I was in a uh, village of Kokong in uh, Botswana, Africa, and two of the guys that I was with, they spoke the language of Setswana. So when they got together, that's the language that they spoke in. And I, I didn't understand anything that they said until I heard Uh, the word until I heard my name and when I heard my name I said wait a second I said I heard Nathan what what are you saying there and uh, they were talking about my preaching style they they said I was like a boxer just coming out of the ring and just throwing haymakers I was like is that a good thing Uh, is that a bad thing and they said it's good because you're standing up before the people and you're telling them they can't have Jesus and the witch doctor So that was a a good thing. So these are just some experiences of what it's like when you don't understand the language. So that's tongues in the context of Corinth. Prophecy in the context of Corinth. What is this? It's to speak on behalf of someone else. To edify the church. Verse 3 answers the why of prophecy. Why it's to be earnestly desired. Because you are speaking to men for for edification, exhortation, and consolation. That's why prophecy is to be earnestly desired over and above tongues. The words of God, and that's what, that's what biblical prophecy is it originates with God, and it comes from God through his uh, spokesman. So the words of God should always have this threefold effect. We should be built up in Christ, encouraged in Christ, and to be comforter, consoled in Christ. Old Testament prophets spoke what God told them, to admonish and to remind and to warn. Prophecy was a gift with corporate benefits. The words of God edify the church. It's corporate, it has corporate benefits also because everyone in the church benefits from words that are spoken on behalf of God. And one reason they were of benefit was because they could actually understand what was being said so that's point one. second, edification of the church verses five through twelve. from the text, I don't believe it's that complicated to see why prophecy is preferred to tongues. with tongues, no one understands what's being said. in prophecy, all the members understood what was being said, and they understood who this message was coming from. so somebody stands. Speaks in a language that's undiscernible, they don't know. You have no idea what they are saying. But in terms of prophecy, they knew who it was coming from, they knew what was being said. They were able to test it, examine it to see if this is true of what's written in the Word. How are we to understand Paul's wish that all spoke in tongues? He's not trying to minimize the importance of the gift of language. Nor is he placing an expectation that all would or should have this gift. He's already said in chapter 12, verse 30, that not everyone's going to speak in tongues and not everyone's going to interpret. We understand this statement, I believe, similarly to to the remark he makes in chapter 7, verse 7, that he wishes all people were single as he. There would certainly be a benefit to everyone having the same marital status. So think if you're sharing a message with somebody. There would be some benefit if everybody had the same marital status as you. There would be benefit if all possessed the same gifts. But this is not, however, in God's economy, how he has wisely designed it. That prophecy is greater than tongues is not in degree of essence but in function. Let me say that again. That prophecy is greater than tongues is not in degree of essence, but in function. So you're not greater if you have the gift of prophecy than any other member would be if they were endowed with a different gift. So we can understand it in this way. Pastor Jordan has the most visible platform at grace. He's gonna be up here more so than anybody else. There's, there's, no really, there's nobody that's a, a close second. Does that mean that among us, and before God that He's greater. He's not more important than any member of this church. Did you catch that? And we, we could supplant his any of the pastors' name and put our name in there. He is not any greater or more important than any other member of this church. The function of the way that God has gifted him does provide a unique way for God to use him in the life of this church. So we see the difference there is not in essence but in way the gifts function in the life of the church. Prophecy was revelatory meaning it was given by God. It was spoken through a means that was not derived from the careful and diligent study of the word. Prophecy was not something that was handed down from tradition. Verse 6 What is it going to profit you if I speak in tongues unless it is by the way of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? The interpretation here, tongues must be understood. There must be interpretation. Words must have meaning. Otherwise, it's not understood and it's not helpful. It doesn't edify. So he gives three examples in this section for why uninterpreted tongues are useless. Verses 6 through 7, verse 8, and verse 9. The first one is this there's not a distinction in the tones of a the the tones of a flute or harp, no one will be able to understand the difference so translation of that is the hearers are not helped if there's no distinction second, what about the bugler if he does not know how to play the proper sound, how will the nation be prepared for war, verse 8 can you imagine the one in the bugle if he's playing the, uh, if he's supposed to play the retreat sound, and he accidentally plays advance. You imagine the great harm that could come if he messed that one up, or if the army couldn't clearly distinguish, this is the sound, this is our response. Verse 9, if what you say is not clear, It's going to be the equivalent of somebody speaking madly into the air. What are they saying? What are they talking about? A week from today, I'll have the opportunity to preach at George Baptist Church in Zambia. I'll be preaching with a translator. Why will I be preaching with a translator? Because they don't know the language of English. And if they didn't have a translator, what good would it be for me to stand before them and be faithful to the sermon text if they do not understand anything that is coming out of my mouth? They'll know that I'm a foreigner, but I will be to them, as Paul said, like a barbarian. So look at it again with me at verse 12, as he addresses their zeal for the spiritual gifts. 14:12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. The moment that your zeal does not have the edification of the church in view is the moment that you know you have a corrupt zeal. Desiring a gift so that you can be used is self-masquerading as humility. Let me say that again. Because this can be poisonous to a church. Desiring a gift so that you can be used is actually self-masquerading as humility. Being zealous for gifts for the benefit of the church is not the same as being zealous for a gift so that you can be used. The former has the church in view. The latter has self in view. And Paul has already said in chapter 13, Love does not seek its own. This is undoubtedly why Paul, right here in verse 12, throughout this letter, threads love and edification throughout. Earnestly desire them, but let them be on display for the glory of Christ and for the common good of the church. So you see how quickly that we can ramrod these wonderful gifts that God endows the church with when we import self into them. Number three, engaging the mind in the work of the spirit, verses 13 through 19. For there to be edification, the mind must be engaged. We've understood thus far the overemphasis that Corinthians had placed on the gift of tongues. It was by far the most desired and sought-after gift for them. And Paul has been clear, prophecy is superior. Not that it's the greatest, but that it benefits everyone in the church. Greek scholar Anthony, Anthony Thistleton makes a case that interpret may not be the best translation and could potentially be misleading. So he surmises verse 13 can be transliterated this way. He who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to produce Articular speech so in, in other words to render into articulate intelligible speech the very things that are difficult to express so in his uh, in, in his Greek commentary which is nearly 1500 pages super thick uh, he deals with six prevailing views on tongues and everyone that I consulted conceded that they could not be absolutely certain on whether or not it's whether or not it's dealing with uh, utterances or human languages but again paul has he has corporate or congregational implications in mind here because when a person prays in a tongue their spirit according to this passage is also praying the holy spirit accompanies such prayer as it relates to scripture and uses such prayer as it helps those who are in unversed in the gifts. Okay, that's, let me say that again. When a person prays in a tongue, their spirit is also praying. The Holy Spirit accompanies such prayer. Accompanies such prayer as that prayer relates to Scripture. And as such prayer helps those who would be unversed or Uh, one word in here, ungifted in the gifts. So the activity of the Spirit in praying and singing is to engage the mind with truth. It is not, as so many have abused, to incite senseless emotional experiences. It's also not to animate experiences that cannot be corroborated with experiences we read of in the Bible. So the Bible is our litmus test. Be understandably leery, When somebody says, when somebody comes to you, and perhaps you've used language like this before, God told me I should do this. God said I should do this. Or maybe they say, the Spirit wants me to do this. I would be leery of that. When what is said cannot clearly be seen from what God has written and commanded believers to do. Anything outside of that, I think you ought to treat with a... I'm not so sure about that. The Spirit of God does lead. The Spirit of God does guide. The Spirit of God does help. I mean, that's, that's the name of the whole, one of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit. He is the, he is the helper. He is the one who discloses the things of Christ to us. Just be careful that you aren't communicating something about God that would confuse others or that lacks scriptural support. Schreiner said that when the church is gathered, the prayer in tongues or the song in tongues must be interpreted and understood. We see the premium Paul puts on understanding, showing that edification comes through the mind through understanding. Again, instruction in the church is essential if the church is to be edified and built up. Emotional experiences will never sustain a congregation people exercising their gift in a way that goes against the grain of what is essential for the church are not helpful in fact they're quite harmful entire denominations are built on the misunderstanding and abuse of these miraculous gifts so is Paul exaggerating when he says I'd rather speak five words with the mind than 10,000 in a tongue I don't believe that he is I believe that he is making a strong point to emphasize Engaging the mind with clear, understandable instruction. The church is not meant to be a spectacle, it's not a show. I think if there were those in Corinth that could witness some of what happens in today's churches today, I think some of them would be wowed by the theatrics. They would be impressed with speakers who possess wonderful oratory gifts, they would be enamored by some of the musical capabilities of those on a stage. This platform right here is not for the demonstration of the gift so that anybody here would be impressed it is for the proclamation of the gospel so that you would be led to be impressed with the gift giver so when the impetus for exercising a gift is edification for the church and the motive is love for Christ and others then the church is going to be able to give their amen you'll be able to give your amen to the very clear work of the Lord or again as Schreiner has aptly put in summarizing this section Spiritual experience is not self-authenticating. One cannot defend spiritual practice in church simply because we find it enthralling or exciting. You want to know who my favorite preachers are? It's the other five dudes that God's given this church. I love their preaching more than anyone else. Do I believe that they are the most Gifted in ability. To, no, it's not. It's not. Has absolutely nothing to do with that. Has everything to do with how God has seen fit to gift this church. They're my favorite. You want to know who my favorite members are in the kingdom of God? It's you. Because God, in His wise economy, has seen fit to compose this body to put us together to endow us with certain gifts for the common good for the glory of his name and for the edification of each other practically speaking This is why we care more about the content than we do about an emotional experience. Emotional experiences are subjective. They take self in view. But content considers what will universally be best for you. Love from God requires the active work of the Spirit to engage your mind with the truthful content of God's Word. Lastly, tongues and prophecy. Unbelievers... believers verses 20 through 25 building upon the need to instruct Paul continues in verse 20 with an example of maturity he says be mature in your thinking this is both an encouragement and an admonition that they need to grow in their understanding of the gifts it's as if he's saying to them you cannot remain neutral forever you cannot stay in this same place you can't always plead ignorance you can't be after years from now not actively progressing in Christ likeness. I mean don't we expect children to mature into adults? This is the example that he cites here. Christians, Christians mature in the faith and as it relates to this text The church of Corinth is to mature in their thinking and practicing of the gifts. Once again, love and edification underscore this maturation and this growth. So listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, this is what growth looks like in the life of a church. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Here comes the metaphor of the body again. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body For the building of itself up in, fill in the blank. It begins with an L, continues with an O, then moves on to a V, and ends with an E. I just did that on the spot. Didn't mean for it to rhyme. The building of itself in love. You see what God's doing here. To further illustrate this point, he draws upon an Old Testament example in Isaiah chapter 28. The foreign-tongued people that he's referencing here are the Assyrians. And the cause of hearing them speak was not one of joy. Rather, it was a vivid reminder of the judgment they received in their captivity. God had promised them rest if they had obeyed, but they didn't listen to him. Therefore, they were led away and they were held captive by a foreign people. So one of the questions that people in the church bat around pretty regularly is to consider the audience of those who attend on any given Sunday. Should services be seeker-sensitive? Should they be evangelistic in nature? Are Sunday's messages for the saints and evangelism be something that's relegated to a separate time? I think the easy answer to this would be just be faithful to the text. I believe this text here, verse 23, I do believe that it helps us to see that we should have in mind both believer and unbeliever when we consider the assembled gatherings. Paul is supposing here. What if an unbeliever enters? and everyone is speaking in tongues. So an unbeliever enters into the assembly, and everyone is speaking in tongues. Paul says he'd think you're mad. It would be confusing and helpful. However, if all prophesy, which you will call is speaking truth about God on behalf of God, perhaps he would be convicted by all, declaring that God is among you, because the content that would engage the mind is edifying, exhorting, and consoling. This is not a plea to be seeker sensitive, but to be aware and mindful for what might hinder an unbeliever outside of the things that already hinder an unbeliever. We wouldn't tell a blind person to go find something that we'd hidden from them, nor would we require a deaf person to respond to a verbal question. When unbelievers gather with believers as we assemble together, we hope and pray verses 24 and 25 are going to happen not in the sense that everyone here should stand up and prophesy, but that the testimony of this church is that we believe the revealed will of God as as has been recorded in his written word. Edification of the church is understood in this section more implicitly than explicitly. The church is edified when unbelievers become convicted. The church is edified when the unbeliever is called to give an account of his sinful life. The church is edified when the heart of an unbeliever is disclosed, when he can see his sin for what it is. The church is edified when the unbeliever becomes a believer. The church is edified when we love each other with the gospel. The church is edified when we love the unbeliever with the gospel. Preaching the gospel is the most loving thing that we can do. For the saints gathered with us today, there is no greater news than Christ bearing our sins upon his body. There's no greater news than without the shedding of his blood, there is no no forgiveness of our sins. There's no greater news that we were buried with him in his death and raised with him in newness of life. The old is gone, the new has come. For any unbelievers who may have found your way with us today, I hold forth for you good news and pray that the Holy Spirit would expose your thoughts It would expose your heart. That he would convict you leading to righteousness. He knows your thoughts. He knows your deeds. He knows every hidden thing in your life. And Hebrews says, One day we will give an account to this God who sees and judges. So the hope behind preaching Christ and him crucified is that you would see that there is mercy available for you in Christ. We hope that you will see that there's grace available for you in Christ. And yes, we do pray that you would fall on your face to worship the living God. Well, before I close in prayer, I do want to quickly address kind of four questions that I think are sort of tied and tethered to chapters 12 through 14. One of them is just the abuse that we see on TV oftentimes. What you see on TV is rampant abuse of the gifts. These are self-appointed people claiming to be prophets, and they are preying upon weak and immature people. Special judgment is reserved for every one of these shysters who lead people away from God. They're bogus, and they're false prophets. Don't give your money to them. Don't pay them any attention. Warn everybody from them. There is no second blessing. This erroneous view holds that Christians should pursue manifestations of the Spirit as evidence of salvation or evidence of a closer walk with God. Scripture is clear. Nothing can be added to Christ in salvation. And Scripture is also clear, Galatians 5 being one of many places, that the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, indwells every believer. And we should walk according to him. We should live according to the Spirit. This is sanctification as evidence through a God-given desire for holiness. We are working, according to Philippians 2, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're not working for our salvation because Philippians 2 says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the second would be just a misunderstanding of faith. Another error to avoid is the faith movement. This is sometimes... Uh, manifests itself in phrases like this. Well, if you only have enough faith, or if something doesn't happen, you must not have had enough faith. We know unbelief to be a sin, but faith does not rest in faith. Faith has an object, and this object is Christ. The faith God gives us is placed in a person, not in an event, and it's certainly not placed in our own faith. Third question is: Are the gifts in operation today? This is a helpful little resource. Um, a couple guys edited it. Four various views that are represented here, and uh, each of the each of the four four guys that um, are proponents of the view begin with things that they are united on, and most importantly, it is the gospel. So, as you can imagine, trying to understand if the gifts are in operation today. Uh, there are several views on this. One it would be cessationism. And that holds forth that the gifts have ceased. Cessationists certainly believe that God is capable, and he does work miracles today. But here's their reservation. Whether all of the same phenomena of miraculous spiritual gifts seen in the early church of the New Testament, are they normal for the entire church age? So cessationists would say that the gifts ceased at the uh, end of the apostolic age, because we have a, um, a full canon of God's word. A continuationist would say that the gifts had continued. A careful continuationist would say the gifts haven't ceased entirely, but they are not in operation in the same way they were in the New Testament. So this latter, the latter one is where, um, it, it's where I land today. Uh, it's where I'm at on this matter. First, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the reasons why. I do believe a time is coming when all gifts will cease. And that time comes when the perfect comes. We will see him as he is. Until then, I think we're still in the realm of the partial. Additionally, the reason I'm careful is that we do now have the full canon. This is God's revealed will. And one of the reasons and uses for the gifts, especially prophecy, was because the canon had not yet been given. There is now no more new revelation from God. We have what he has revealed in his word. And so all my cessationist friends will say, well, well yeah, man, that's, that's why you ought to be a cessationist. But perhaps you're right. And uh, when, when, the, when the perfect comes, then we'll both know. See what I do with that? All right. <clears throat> I do want to read one quote from here. Um, I don't, I'm not sure, I can't remember this guy, his name. But I think it, it helps sum up why I believe the Bible holds forth just being careful with um, the operation of the gifts today. To state my opinion up front, the New Testament does not explicitly teach the cessation of certain gifts at a particular point in the experience of the church. It is therefore impossible to say on the basis of biblical teaching that certain gifts cannot occur at any given time according to God's sovereign purpose. On the other hand, there are several lines of evidence that demonstrate That the miraculous phenomena experienced in the early biblical church are not standard for the life of the church throughout all time. So I found that to be helpful to say we we don't really know. Lastly, is how is the desire to pursue gifts, is that any different today for us than in the days of Corinth? How do we Understand, chapter twelve, verse thirty-one. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, or chapter fourteen, verse one. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Is 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 the desire that he was holding forth for them different then than it is now? And I would answer that in this way: Pursue love. It's not sidestepping the earnestly desiring gifts. But to pursue love, why? Because the greatest of these is love. Eventually gifts will give way. Love will never cease. So consider how God's gifted you and seek him on how you can serve and edify this body. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you, you know us, you know that we are but dust, you know our frame. Lord, you know all the weaknesses of this congregation here. You know how you have used the members of this church, how you've endowed us with gifts so that we could be of mutual encouragement and help to one another. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us more of an awareness for how you have individually gifted us, gifted one another. And we pray that this would be the kind of church where we would encourage that so long as the operation of these are done in humility and that the motivation is one of love and that the end goal would be our mutual being built up into a body of Christ that loves each other. We pray that you would do this for your glory. And we pray that you do this for our joy in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.